Welcome to the 72nd episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertpearlmd.com. So let's begin with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life, and then go on to discuss some of the medical issues of broader impact. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, overall, as winter arrives, we're seeing the number of cases and the daily U.S. mortality rising, as expected from COVID, but at a slow rather than rapid rate. The data continues to indicate good protection of most individuals against severe infection following vaccination, although the level of protection drops in people without booster shots, particularly the elderly and immunocompromised. Fortunately, for most individuals, Paxlovid, the oral pills taken after diagnosis, continues to diminish the risks in, in patients who take it early in their clinical course. Globally, according to the head of the World Health Organization, WHO, Deaths have dropped 90% this year. We're seeing around 10% deaths a week versus 75,000 in February of 2022. But of course, all these numbers may change as soon as China, following protests across the country, shifts away from strict implementation of a zero COVID-19 policy and its approach to locking down entire cities when a case is identified. Relative to a different disease, one we've talked about in this show, monkeypox, this has been a worrisome threat a short time ago, and it's becoming less and less of a problem as a result of greater availability of vaccination and medication treatments. And recently, the WHO renamed the infection as mpox, M-P-O-X, to remove any references to wild animals. Robbie, a listener wants to know if there was data on the relative value of the new bivalent vaccine against the old one. Jeremy, that question requires a somewhat complex answer. And despite a lot of research, we still are uncertain of the relative efficacy. We do know in laboratory tests that the new vaccine that includes protection against both the original coronavirus strain and also against Omicron proves better. Specifically, Moderna has said that its bivalent vaccine generates five times the circulating neutralizing antibody levels of the original vaccine against BA.4 and BA.5 without any increase in side effects or complications. But we still don't have any clinical data around efficacy for a variety of reasons. And that's the real test of a vaccine. Now, there are multiple reasons for this gap in our knowledge. First, only about 14% of people have received the new vaccine. Second, rather than doing broad clinical trials, which half of people would get the new vaccine and half the older version, 
All individuals are being given the updated one. And finally, the dominant viral strains today are different than the ones in the past. So data on hospitalization and deaths following the current round as measured against older vaccines just aren't comparable. However, people are optimistic that revised vaccines will be better than the first version. And as a result, they're looking at approaches to COVID in the future that may mirror how we protect people against the flu today. That would include an annual booster shot aimed at the particular strains that were circulating at the time. And since most often with COVID, new variants evolve from prior ones, as opposed to influenza, where there can be a huge year-to-year -year difference, this annual booster methodology, when applied to the coronavirus, should be even more effective than when it is used against influenza. From a policy and medical perspective, some experts have suggested that by combining the COVID and flu vaccines and giving them as a single booster at the start of every winter, that we can maximize immunity across the country against both infections. One current problem is that neither this new vaccine nor the older one is very effective at protecting people against infection from some of the newer variants, including BQ.1 and BQ.1.1 that we discussed on the last Coronavirus The Truth podcast. As such, except for those at high risk of severe disease, and that would include older individuals, people with compromised immune systems, and pregnant women, it's unclear how much advantage people will, will obtain from getting boosted with the new vaccine versus getting the older one. And this is particularly true when it comes to younger, healthier individuals who are unlikely to require hospitalizations or die in either case. Despite clear outcome data, many public health officials still are touting the value of using the new vaccine for booster vaccination. They point to the overall safety and theoretical advantages it provides against these newer variants. In addition to these uncertainties, there is debate among scientists as to the optimal timing for boosters. As strange as it sounds, while some scientists believe that more frequent boosting is better, there are others hypothesizing that longer spacing between shots might be more beneficial relative to achieving a higher total immune response, as opposed to just focusing on circulating antibodies. Similarly, there's scientific debate as to whether these newer vaccines will actually provide increased protection or whether getting the original vaccine another time will produce and result in far higher immunity since it will stimulate the specific immunity-generating cells that already are primed to manufacture antibodies, and other protective agents. As you can tell, there are few clear answers when it comes to COVID. The one point on which nearly all scientists agree is that vaccination and boosting, regardless of the specific vaccine used, is better than nothing. And that's true even in people who've had a prior infection and are simply looking to have their immunity increased to better protect themselves in the future. Jeremy, let me ask you, as a patient, when scientific data remains unclear and controversial 
and I'm talking about among reputable researchers, how should we communicate that information to patients? What would you recommend organizations like the CDC and WHO do in these times when there's honest, unresolved scientific debate? I think, Robbie, the biggest thing is transparency. I think they need to come forward and be transparent about what they do and don't know and not try to essentially, you know, exaggerate how much they know about something just so people remain confident in them. I think that's the biggest step is transparency, as well as when they have made a mistake, go back and later say, hey, we were wrong here, but we know more information now. Here's why we were wrong. Trust is key for communication in these situations. Robbie, a number of listeners wanted more information on what we discussed in the last episode of the triple-demic. What's happened since the last Coronavirus The Truth podcast? The problem, Jeremy, has become drastically worse. And COVID seems like the least threatening of the three viruses, at least as measured by the need for hospitalization. Both the flu and RSV are rapidly filling hospitals and threatening both the elderly and the very young. It's not certain how much of this season's viral problem derives from an early and virulent winter season versus how much is a result of masking and social distancing for the past two years that having protected people from getting RSV and influenza have actually reduced their immunity against these viruses. For the very young, absence of exposure would make them in quotes, immunologically naive, and they'd be very susceptible to severe infection. And even for people with prior immunity, scientists hypothesize that exposure to the virus at viral load levels below what it takes for infection still boost people's resistance. And that would have happened far less frequently when our nation masked and socially distanced compared to the past. Already, this is a severe and deadly virus season, and we're not yet at the point when these infections typically arise and increase in prevalence. That doesn't happen until January following indoor holiday gatherings. And adding to pediatricians' worry is the reality that as a result of COVID, many young kids fail to get their recommended immunizations against the traditional childhood diseases as such measles, a highly contagious and potentially lethal disease, could be an additional threat this year. Combining all of the threats together, epi epidemiologists fear that the next six months will be a viral storm. Robbie, can you expand a bit more on what's happening with the flu? Jeremy, overall, influenza hospitalizations are higher than they have been for over a decade at this particular time of year, with the U.S. already having 8.7 million cases, 78,000 hospitalizations, and a total of 4,500 deaths, according to the CDC. Compared to this time last year, hospitalization rates for the flu are 40 times higher, and the problem seems to be getting worse. Flu-connected hospital admissions over Thanksgiving week almost doubled the previous week. And they were the highest level seen for that period since the 2010 season, according to the CDC. Adults 65 and older 
and kids four and under have been hit particularly hard during this unusually early surge. And that, and that is especially bad for those older individuals and children who have underlying health conditions. But despite all this data and all of the problems, four in 10 Americans say they don't plan to get a flu shot this season. They're concerned about the vaccine either not working or side effects. The data says it's the best way to protect yourself and your children against needing hospitalization and in many cases going on to die. A population at great risk and concern are pregnant women who this year are being vaccinated against the flu 12% less than they were last year and 22% less than in 2020. I think the problems from this viral pa pandemic, from this triple-demic, are only going to get worse before they get better. And I think our hospitals are going to have tremendous difficulty keeping up with the demand. People looking back who are not vaccinated, who are not protecting themselves, are likely to be disappointed that they didn't take action when they could have. Robbie, at the start of today's podcast, you mentioned the challenges China is facing with people protesting against the imposed restrictions of a zero COVID policy. Can you elaborate a bit? Jeremy, China faces a precarious situation. For the past two years, it imposed strict limitations on people whenever a person in a community or city became infected. Often these lockdowns impacted millions of people and kept their prisoners in their own houses. A recent closure led to 10 deaths after an apartment fire started in a major city, and these restrictions prevented help coming quickly enough. Protests, of course, China resulted. Politically, the leaders of China have touted for two years the country's success at having one of the lowest mortality rates in the world. But as a result of this zero COVID lockdown approach, few people have been infected and therefore few people have developed natural immunity. Adding to the problem is the fact that the vaccine China produced is less effective than the ones available in the US and Europe. And finally, given the zero COVID policy, people haven't been overly concerned about getting sick or dying since there's not a lot of COVID circulating. And as such, vaccination rates are relatively low, even among the elderly who are at the highest risk. As such, suddenly reversing zero COVID at this point will most likely result in a massive number of deaths. The Chinese leaders are in the process of doing that, feeling like they have little choice given the size of the protests and the economic hardship the lockdowns have imposed. Health officials estimate that as these restrictions are eased, the country will quickly run out of ICU beds. A growing number of people are calling for President Xi Jinping's resignation, something unimaginable even a month ago. It's unclear what the president of the country is going to do. Jeremy, this is a powerful example of why I believe that politics and medicine don't mix. Remember back a year ago, we talked about how China was exporting its vaccine as part of its global political strategy. 
But having done so, once it became clear that both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were better than the Chinese vaccine, the country's leadership couldn't admit it. Had China purchased a sufficient quantity of these highly effective vaccines and made them readily available to people, particularly those at greatest risks, lives would have been saved, lockdowns could have been avoided, and the leaders wouldn't be in this dilemma that they are today. Jeremy, let me ask you a question. It seems like just about every country erred when it came to embracing and implementing a successful public policy relative to COVID-19. As a social scientist, do you believe this resulted from the peculiarities of the virus or from the nature of politics and society? Ravi, I think in 100 years, historians are going to look back at how the pandemic was handled and be extremely critical of how the vast majority of countries handled it. Early on, I think fear of something new played a large part in how it was handled with the lockdowns, closing of schools, etc. Uh, we lost a lot of lives to COVID-19 and continue to do so, and that's tragic. Uh, we needed a strategy, though, that focused on the more vulnerable, minimizing economic damage and the effects of children falling behind in school, the increase in mental health issues and drug abuse that all resulted from how the pandemic was handled. Economically, it'll still be quite a while before we fully recover from the inflation and supply chain issues that were either caused by or exacerbated by the handling of the pandemic. I think many governments around the world used their COVID policy partially as a way to consolidate and increase their power. And historically, when governments increase their power and restrict rights for an emergency, it almost never goes back to how it was before the emergency, even when it's over. There was so much fear going on that dissenting opinions from experts were labeled as misinformation. Things like the Great Barrington Declaration were dismissed and censored. Uh, whether dissenting opinions are right or wrong, dissenting opinions from reputable scientists should at the very least be heard and considered. In America, for example, I think the political division our society currently faces made things so much worse than it should have been. It became tribalized to the point where the left was pro-restrictions, lockdowns, etc., and the right was pro-freeding, opening up the economy, etc., People were so entrenched in their camps that they didn't even listen to what the other side had to say. At the beginning of the pandemic, people were so scared. We didn't want hospitals to be overwhelmed. No one had immunity, etc. But as we learned more, our approach did not evolve the way it should have to focus on things like how is this impacting children's education in the economy? I truly believe if everyone kept a more open mind and was willing to evolve strategies as we learn more and truly work together as a society more lives would have been saved and we would have not had nearly the myriad of issues that came along with how the pandemic was handled. Robbie, there are around 300 to 350 deaths in the United States each day from COVID. What are the current demographics of those individuals and where does COVID rank in cause of death? In terms of causes of death, with 300 to 350 deaths a day, somewhere between 100,000 and maybe 130,000 people dying each year, it would be the third leading cause after heart attacks and cancer. In terms of the demographics of who is suffering the most and dying most frequently as a result, what we've seen is that there are three phases that this pandemic has gone through. In the first year when there was no vaccine, the majority of deaths were in the elderly. This was predictable and reflected the greater vulnerability and reduced ability to fight infection for individuals who are older, particularly those with chronic diseases. In the second year, we saw a reversal of this trend due to far more rapid and greater uptake in the available vaccines by people over the age of 65 
and their consistent following of social distancing and mask wearing. But now the pendulum has swung back. Based on data from the CDC, nine out of every 10 deaths in the U.S. from COVID now, it's happening in people 65 years and older. The reasons for this skewed distribution are multiple. They include greater vulnerability among the elderly when infected and lower immunity following vaccination or infection, which certainly when you compare it to individuals who are younger. But the biggest factor shifting the demographics is that the current viruses are able to break through immunity. This reduces the advantages that elderly individuals had in the second year and once again puts them at far greater risk when we compare them to younger individuals. Phrased differently, once everyone had immunity, whether from vaccination or infection, and almost no one was social distancing or wearing a mask, then in phase three, the same factors, age and chronic disease, determine who when infected is likely to die and who has the highest chance of needing hospitalization. And adding to the problem is the fact that vaccines are not as effective among older adults because their immune system weakens with age. It's much harder to train an older immune system to fight a virus, and that training diminishes more quickly in the elderly. From a statistical perspective, Americans between the age of 65 and 79, when they're vaccinated and boosted, their mortality drops by more than 87% compared to the unvaccinated. This is about a six-fold lower chance of dying after infection. It's very significant, of course, but far less than a 15-fold decline that we see in individuals who are vaccinated and bivalent in the overall population. And for people 80 and above, these are the individuals with the highest mortality. The reduction is only a factor of four, 75% less than we might otherwise have expected from the overall population data. In total, we're seeing around 300 deaths per day, as you, as you said, and expanded vaccination would reduce this statistic, but it would do so most likely by saving an even higher percentage of younger folks. And as such, it's likely that the current death rate will persist, and depending upon what happens relative to viral mutations, could increase in the future as well. Robbie, as the usual, what's this episode's newest piece of information about COVID relative to kids? Jeremy, one new finding is that the stress of the pandemic has been shown to have physically altered the brains of teenagers. Researchers at Stanford University compared 80 current MRI scans of the brains of teenagers with 80 performed pre-pandemic. They, they identified accelerated signs of aging in the current group, similar to what is seen in kids who experience violence and neglect. According to the researchers, a 16-year-old girl's brain might now be equivalent to a 19- or 20-year-old's before COVID. For the neurologists listening to this podcast, what was actually seen was an enlargement of the hippocampus, an area of the brain associated with memory, and the amygdala, which is often referred to as the fear center and intimately related to emotions. 
The second story when it comes to the kids is that the FDA has authorized and the CDC recommended the use of the bivalent Pfizer-Moderna vaccines for all children, anyone six months and older. Kids aged six months to five years were the last segment of the population for whom this new booster hadn't yet been recommended. But what remains unclear is the specific basis for recommending this vaccine be given to a population with an extremely low risk of death from COVID infection. FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, hoping to drive vaccination, said earlier this month that it was important to get young children vaccinated ahead of the holidays, where, in quotes, more time will be spent indoors. Of course, he's correct that people will be gathering inside, but he didn't explain whether the recommendations were aimed to protect the health of the children or the lives of those around them. And if it's the latter, it's unlikely that the majority of parents will request it for their infants. Robbie, listeners are really enjoying our expanded focus on medical events beyond COVID. What's new? Jeremy, the world hit a population milestone of 8 billion people. To many listeners, the fact that there are more people on the planet may be unsurprising. But many may not realize that the population increase happened despite fertility falling for the past 50 years. The reason for the increase was improvements in healthcare around the globe. Nearly all of the progress happened from public health measures, cleaner water, better food, effective vaccinations, and reduction in deaths from malaria. And most of the improvement happened for kids. As such, even though there are more people on the planet, the average age of individuals around the globe has risen, and it's likely to continue to do so as fertility continues to decline. If the world wants the trend of better health to be progressive in the future, it's going to make investments and find advances at the other end of the age spectrum than what has happened over the past 50 years. This means we need to learn how to better prevent chronic diseases, which are growing in frequency in nearly all countries, and we need to help people address them once they arrive. If we fail to do so, the aging of the world's population will continue, and the total number of people on this globe is likely to decline. Jeremy, I've been writing lately about the opportunities to prevent chronic disease and help people take care of themselves in order to avoid complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. What do you see as the role of the patient and what actions do you believe will be most vital in gaining people's engagement? Robbie, I think ultimately the buck stops with the patient. I think it is important for patients to have relationships with their primary care providers and I think focusing on preventative health, wellness, and diet education should be a much bigger part of primary care. In my opinion, the primary care model should have an educational piece built in around how to eat healthy, how to prevent chronic disease, and live an overall better life. I think part of primary care should include some life coaching around these things, potentially via an app where someone working at the physician's office can answer basic questions around diet and exercise, but also have someone at the office reach out to the patient regularly and ask them if they're following a good diet. I think of this similarly to that of a gym memberships, where there is either an accountability group or a personal trainer that will reach out to someone with a membership that stops showing up. 
As I said earlier, the buck stops with the patient, though. Using that same gym concept as an example, someone can have a membership to the best gym in town and have the best personal trainer, and the personal trainer can reach out and ask them, hey, why aren't you at class today? Or, hey, are you following that diet I gave you? But they can't go to that person's house and cook for them or take them to the gym. So I think there should be more resources out there and more handholding baked into the primary care model. But ultimately, it's the patient's responsibility to take care of their own health. Robbie, speaking of prevention, what has happened to cancer screening since the start of the pandemic? Jeremy, the story, it's not good. According to an article in JAMA Oncology, the United States hasn't returned to the levels that our country achieved prior to COVID. Of interest, there's been a biphasic pattern relative to prevention. Our nation saw a rapid decline in screening in the months soon after the pandemic began. It was followed by a rebound almost to pre-pandemic levels in late 2020. But since then, the nation's performance has declined and the gaps in prevention have expanded. The result is that doctors this year are diagnosing cancer at a much later stage than they had previously. And among individuals with diagnosed cancers who had been previously treated, a growing percentage of patients are failing to get the recommended cancer checkups they need. How much of this problem reflects healthcare fatigue versus fear of contracting COVID at the doctor's office or reduced availability of medical access? We can't be sure. However, this is one of the many associated medical problems that COVID has produced that will haunt people's health for decades into the future. What else is new? Jeremy, the number of home births in the United States reached a 30-year high, according to the CDC, as people feared contracting COVID if they were to deliver in hospitals. In total, there were 52,000 babies born at home, with the greatest increase coming among Black and Hispanic women. For a percentage basis, from 1990 to 2019, home births rose on average about 2% a year. But from 2019 to 2021, the percent increase was 22%. Of course, we can't be sure how much of the spike was planned at home births and how much of it was a result of non-medical problems, such as challenges in public transportation. In total, 1.4% of births were at home in 2021, the highest level that we've seen since 1990. What about a third healthcare story? Jeremy, we've covered the high cost of drugs in the United States on our Diving Deep podcast, but the FDA just approved the medication that set a new record. This drug, Hemgenex, treats a specific type of hemophilia. It's not the most common variety. And this medication will cost $3.5 million per patient. It's now the most expensive therapy in the world. Although the, no, although the total number of people with this problem is relatively small, estimated to be about one person in every 40,000, payers will have to write a check for the total cost of treatment in a single year. And this could have a major negative impact 
on small employers, insurers, and public programs like Medicaid that will need to fund the expense. The good news is that if the treatment provides lifelong protection from bleeding and other complications, and we think it might, but it's still uncertain, then the long-term dollars saved could offset much of the upfront costs. And according to the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, were this to happen, it would make a reasonable price for the drug be 2.9 million, much closer to the manufacturer's price tag than for many of the other exorbitant new medications. Robbie, along those lines, I read that there is now a new Alzheimer drug that may prove far better than a dual helm. The medication we discussed on a prior episode of the podcast that had little research to support or justify its exorbitant price tag. Jeremy, you're correct. We previously talked about Adohelm and the lack of clinical data on the drug preventing dementia progress. We talked at that time that there seems to be little justification for the initial $55,000 annual cost a price that has interestingly dropped significantly as doctors haven't recommended it to patients despite FDA approval under the accelerated approval process. This newest medication, it's a drug called lecanemab, which has demonstrated evidence of slowing mental decline in patients. Like Aruhelm, it targets the plaques in people's brains who are suffering from Alzheimer's disease like Adelhelm, it has been associated with intracranial bleeding. The results published in the New England Journal of Medicine found that treatment with lecanemab slowed cognitive decline by 27% over 18 months. However, many questions remain, both relative to how meaningful the measured improvement actually was and the overall safety of the medication particularly in patients on anticoagulants or blood thinners. Two deaths from bleeding into the brain were recently reported by the journal Science. The FDA is reviewing the data under the accelerated approval process, and we expect that a final decision by the FDA will be reached sometime next spring. But with questions remaining about the medication's safety, there's ongoing debate as to whether the agency should restrict who receives it, or at least impose strict precautions. Robbie, sign up for health care coverage under the Affordable Care Act is in progress. How's it going? As you know, Jeremy, the Affordable Care Act is very complex, and it includes not just the exchanges, but a variety of government-paid subsidies for those who earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not enough to pay the full cost of coverage. Many of these subsidies were scheduled to end this year, but Congress and the Inflation Reduction Act renewed them through 2025, helping millions to stay insured. As a result, total signups this year have increased by 17% compared to the past, and the number of new enrollees, that's increased by 40% compared to previous years. This added enthusiasm for coverage under the ACA may reflect the fact that the government will be stopping free COVID testing, vaccination, and treatment sometime next year, and people have to pay the expense, either out of pocket or through insurance. 
Listeners should be aware that the deadline for enrolling in the ACA is January 15, but rather than waiting, they should begin now since coverage in some cases require employers to send information to the government, which can take time. ACA navigators are available to help people with the entire process. Ravi, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, what's challenging in healthcare today is how much of the specifics of both coverage and care can vary state by state. To me, it doesn't make much sense that two people living 10 miles apart could have huge differences in regulations, access, and restrictions when a state border runs between them. In fact, there often is far greater variation in person preference within states than across them. And yet we have 50 different sets of rules. We saw that phenomenon in the most recent election when Arizona passed a bill that would limit interest on medical debt to 3% annually. Arizona was the fourth state to do so after Maine, Massachusetts, and California. But what about the other 46 states? And 3% applied to debts over $5,000 still leave millions of Americans facing bankruptcy when they suffer a severe medical problem. Rather than a national healthcare policy, increasingly each piece is being decided by the whims of state legislatures and 52-48 voter margins. I can see variation by states when it comes to things like taxes, schools, highway spending, but it makes no sense to me in healthcare why should telemedicine rules, as an example, vary by geography? Either video is helpful or it's problematic, but it shouldn't be helpful in one state and problematic in the next, assuming that people follow the same set of rules and regulations. No one's forced to use it. We won't be able to solve it, in my opinion, the challenges of the 21st century with the limitations and vagaries of the past. And we saw Oregon pass a ballot initiative making healthcare a right for people. Of course, this means people in the state will have to pay higher taxes or see reductions in spending in areas like education, police, and fire. Our nation has been deb debating the question whether healthcare is a right or a privilege for Americans without resolution. Making it a right in Oregon, but not in the rest of the country, to me, makes no sense. It'd be as though we had. 50 different bills of rights. Either it's a right for Americans or it's not. To me, it does not seem like a state issue, but that is the nature of politics in the United States today. And the same is true for Medicaid. When the program was begun, the cost of medical care was reasonable and setting coverage at the poverty level made sense. Now people earning twice that level can't possibly afford to be hospitalized for a heart attack, stroke, major cancer treatment, or severe trauma. In some states, coverage through a program that is 90% funded federally is provided, while in other states, it's not for people earning a similar income. You know, what we have today to me is illogical, and our continued willingness to tolerate this inconsistency, I think that's an unwritten rule that needs breaking. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and in all podcasting apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us 
a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.